The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Good. <laughs> Didn't see the cue. Good morning, everybody. This is Paul Rudy. Happy Tuesday, and I'm here with my regular guest, Dr. Fred Gertz. Good to be Fred. back in the studio. Yeah, good to be back in the studio. Everybody's smiling. Everybody's feeling good. Everybody's had their shots. Brian, you've had yours too, right? Yeah, so far so good. Yeah, I had both of mine, and I, Dr. Fred's had both of his. And Ryan, you better watch out there, seeking out people who've got. In front of the line <laughs> in <true>. Chicago. <laughs> yeah, I'll be okay. I'll stay. I'll stay down here. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we got a lot to talk about today. You can call in with your questions at two one seven three five six nine three nine seven, or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at three five one five three five seven. You can also email your questions to talk at wdws dot com. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. Well, Dr. Fred Gertz, there's, looks like our chairman of the Federal Reserve, Powell, um, this is from a Reuters article. He stated, I think it was yesterday, the U.S. economy is much improved. Federal Reserve Chair uh, Jerome Powell uh, said on Monday, creating Congress, uh, crediting Congress and the central bank for providing unprecedented support, but at the same time warning that recovery is still far from complete. But he did say it's progressed more quickly than generally expected, and it looks to be strengthening. Strengthening Household spending has risen. The household sector is more than fully recovered. I think that's kind of an interesting story. Unemployment rate still elevated at 6.2, underestimates the shortfalls, in his opinion. So it was kind of a tone of cautious optimism. They decided to keep interest rates at zero, and they are literally appears to be at zero. And they say they're going to keep going about buying their bonds at a pace of about $120 billion a month until the Fed sees substantial further progress. Policymakers see inflation at rising to 2.4% this year as people rush to spend their pent-up savings. Right. And now we're going to have $3 trillion right. uh, yeah, infrastructure. It's, it's, yeah, it's always easy, easier to... Uh, be in, in favor of easy money or uh, more spending. Uh, the, the real test is going to come when he has to uh, put we'll on the brakes. Do you think that uh, you know he's 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 doing all these things and going along with it, but at the same time saying, "But we're probably going to have above two percent inflation," yeah. so that they can say, "Well, we told you, there's no surprise here." Yeah. But you know he's gotten things wrong a couple of times where he had yeah. to walk it back and uh, and, and yeah. cause a little bit of problems. But well, we can get into that later. But uh, then, of course, at about the same time, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, uh, she paints an optimistic picture for the picture for the U.S. economy, uh, sees both growth and possibly full employment next year due to President uh, Biden's coronavirus stimulus package. I'm confident that people will reach the other side of this pandemic and foundations of their lives intact. Is this what the stock market was telling us maybe a year ago? I think so, but it probably... Uh, uh knew more than it could know. I mean, I don't think anyone expected the situation to be as, as good as it is now a year ago. So, again, the stock market was forward-looking, but maybe optimistic even in those days. And I guess and that's kind of how the, the strange the market works. You know, everybody's bewildered when we're still in a recession and the stock market's going up. Yeah. Maybe we're in for a period, and it's not unusual for everything's sort of discounted now, and people are going to be confounded by if the economy's doing so great, how come the stock market isn't? You know, right? I'm not forecasting. No, I'm just, but, but you, you the economy be. would be would be catching up with the expectations, so that actually would be kind of a good thing. Uh, I mean, again, we we never make predictions, but it would be hard to see like another explosion of the stock market. But again, no one ever knows. Uh, you have to. Just wait and. In fact, it's gone up so much, you, you know, in one year, uh, that it's almost rare how often um, the stock market increases in in one year's time. That might be a little bit of a warning. Right. Um, and then I, I've read an interesting article. Um, I'm a fan of uh, Brian Westbury. Uh, he's he's he wrote an interesting article, uh, sort of about. You know that that what uh, 
central, uh, the central bank is trying to do and accomplish. And he was the one that said, well, maybe that, because he's forecast higher inflation and real GDP growth, so that if and when it occurs, according to the article, you can say, well, that doesn't surprise us at all. In the last meeting, they raised their 2021 real GDP forecast, gross domestic product, to 6.5% growth, while he expects 2.4% inflation. Uh, and they expect unemployment to fall below 4% in 2022. That's, that's really rosy. But Brian Westbury goes on to kind of, you know, he talked about how this is a little bit challenging going forward. One of the things that the Treasury, the Treasury, well, the central bank's going to need the banking system in order to keep doing all this buying, buying, right. buying, bond buying and all that. Hey, I have a hard time with my words today, Fred. Should have done some tongue twisters before. Uh, and so that involves the banks probably holding a lot of cash reserves. And they were trying to remove the 5% capital requirement against basically the most risk-free, you know, instruments on the planet. Right. But they failed to do so. And I think that was maybe a political uh, jab saying, no, we don't want the banks to keep making this yeah. money because they can borrow it at basically right. 0% interest. And he, you know, kind of uh, inferred that maybe part of this, we've seen the 10-year treasury go from well, probably a year ago was at a half a percent per year. Now it's at 1.75% a year. It's really gone up, still low from an historical perspective, but it's gone up quite a bit. And he wonders if that isn't a little bit of worry on the market saying, well, if the banks are now going to have to have that capital, maybe eventually it will, they won't right. be able to buy as many treasuries as it's going to take for these, mo you know, these uh, modern monetary theory theorists who right. think you can just create money out of thin air as long as you want. Well, again, uh, all the responsible people uh, don't really adhere to the modern monetary theory, but they say this at this particular time, what we would do more or less coincides what they would do all the time. So I think the, the real test is when uh, easy money and more spending is no longer the, uh, the correct kind of uh, prescription. They'll have to make some, some painful changes. And they, everyone is, not everyone, but most people are promising to do that. But the question is, will they actually do it when the time comes? So, uh, uh, Powell, the uh, Fed chair, uh, Fed uh, chairman, is, is actually in a pretty good position now because uh, he's ba basically making doing the things that uh, Trump liked. He's also doing the things that uh, yep. Biden likes that right now. So it's easy when you're you're uh, getting cheers from everyone, but it's going to be tougher when a situation like uh, Volcker had in in the uh, '70s, where you have to make some hard decisions. Westbury is a pretty good economist, and he wrote finally: while we expect the Fed to escape the dangerous downside to these new rules. He was talking about the capital yeah. rules. Uh, we are all also cognizant of the fact that the U.S. has entered an unprecedented period of government regulation and growth. Um, he, he went on to say former Clinton Treasury Secretary Larry Summers has called it the least responsible fiscal macroeconomic policy we've had for the last 40 years. And finally, Westbury said, uh, really, it's not the past 40 years. It's really in the entire history of the U.S., but he is still an optimist. In the near term, investors are safe from stagflation we saw 40 years ago because there's a lot of people worrying about yeah. that. But as 2023 rolls around, we aren't so sure. And I think yeah. that's that kind of like, hey, for a while, it's probably everything's going to be rosy. Right. But then, but then you know, almost under the weight of itself, uh, might crowd out the private economy somewhat, yeah. and you know, seem to be some concerns there. Yeah, Summers is a really highly respected uh, analyst. He was uh, Secretary of Treasury, President of Harvard. Uh, he's also a lightning rod. Lots of people don't like him, but he, he's actually in a kind of strange situation because in uh, 2008 and 2009, he argued that we weren't doing enough, that we should have been more aggressive in terms of uh, anti-recession policy, and now he's arguing we're actually going too far. So uh, there's something to be uh, be said there. I think you have to have to take it seriously. But again, he, he's a Democrat, but he's... Uh, used to be called a liberal Democrat. Now he's a conservative Democrat because not that he's changed, but the other uh, ah. Democrats have changed. So a, a lot of other people uh, uh, equally uh, famous uh, are arguing that uh, uh, more is fine right now and we should, if we're going to err, we should err on the side of uh, too much rather than too little. It seems like there's, uh, that some politicians do look go back to the great financial crisis in 2008-2009 and wonder out loud that should have gone bigger. Yeah. And they didn't. And it sounds like Larry Summers was one of them. 
and maybe they're overdoing that lesson. And, and yeah, we're throwing a lot at this economy, and now we're talking about a three trillion dollar. Yeah, n- not that it gets done necessarily, but probably uh, right. now we're infrastructure plan, which all sounds good, but you can imagine probably half that's right. wasted. But uh, but still, that has yeah. to be. Yeah, one would think stimulative for the economy. Well, I think even uh, the proponents uh, realize there's a danger here. The, the argument that more sophisticated people uh, give, like Alan Blinder, who's another yep. Democratic economist who's really uh, respected, is saying that uh, if we're going to make a mistake, let's make a mistake on the side of too much rather than too little. So, How do you uh, feel about that? Well, again, I, I, I'm, I'm more, uh, more hesitant to go in that direction, but I, I'm not a— uh, in, in that kind of situation. So if you're in power, uh, you always want to err on the side of too much rather than too little. There's a saying that uh, uh, there are no uh, atheists in foxholes and there's no uh, uh, non-Keynesians in, in office. Whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, once you come into office, the uh, incentive always is to spend more and to uh, keep interest rates low. So, is it? Do you think it's sort of generally accepted that the risk of overdoing it is inflation? Yeah, but but right now uh, the the argument that they have is that inflation is is so modest, yep. and the expectations given these long term interest rates is still so low that we can make a little bit of a mistake on that side and still correct. Now again, the the question is when does it go too far? Like the the sixties, obviously, the case where we went way too far, and it wasn't just a matter of turning a couple switches. It took right. uh, a decade to get things under control. So because yeah, they really they they built up that excess. Uh, borrowing and, and mm. mo- excess money supply really for a number of years. I mean, that, that yeah. really built and built and built, and I think that's why, yeah. you know, Reagan and Volcker had to be. Yeah, the argument is, I, I'm not sure this is the only cause, but uh, uh, in the Johnson administration, they had two goals. One was to uh, uh, deal with Vietnam. The other was to deal with uh, domestic policy, the war on poverty. And you might have been able to do one or two of the one of the two without any kind of problems. We do both at the same time without any kind of uh, of restraint in terms of the monetary and fiscal policy that becomes a problem. Seems like that it's almost the setup for all economic crises. It's like if you go back to the depression, you know, it seemed like you had bank bad bank policy and bad political policy and bad agricultural policy all at the yeah. same time. You get a confluence like that. And like you said, you could probably survive one of them. Right. Uh, but when you get multiple uh, events, you know, it can cause real trouble. Yeah, and it's easier in retrospect. I think everyone knows that the uh, uh, now that the Smoot-Hawley uh, uh, tariff was detrimental. So we had uh, high tariffs. We had uh, a contracting money supply during the, the recession. And the, the Friedman argument is that uh, 1929 would have been a kind of a, a ordinary severe recession had it not been for these other policies. But again, no one no one knew it at the time. We only knew it know it now, uh, 70 years after, or 100 years after. And Dr. Gertz, I think when we talk about inflation, a lot of our, our clients and folks that are coming to us just looking for some advice from time to time say, well, given the state of how much money we're, we're doling out, uh, regardless if you think it's right or wrong, it must, that's kind of their wording, it must mean inflation, if not what they'll term hyperinflation to come in the future. And there seems to be enormous concern about what's happening um, in the context of maybe not their life, but are we setting up the next generation for this shackles lifestyle where all we're going to be doing is paying down this enormous debt? And I explain, you know, my opinion on the matter that maybe inflation, uh, not necessarily hyperinflation, is certainly an option. It's one of the possible outcomes, but it's not the only outcome, which seems to almost be like the the mentality, whether it's pushed from media or just through, you know, coffee talk, yeah. uh, you know, or sitting around the table and I guess what is your take on the possibility of what most people I think are afraid of is very large inflation, not just regular yeah. inflation? No, I guess I'm not uh, concerned about uh, 10, 15 percent inflation. I think could well push back up into the four or five, even six percent. <coughs> that'd be uh, like temporarily. The, that'd be like the late eighties, right? Right. Right. When we had some five and six, six and a half percent inflation. Well, yeah, and, and then, but. Again, uh, the question is, uh, when do you stop? You only get to uh, 10 or 15% by going to 6, 7, 8, and so on. So the question is, when do we put the brakes on? So I guess I, I'm not nearly as um, as concerned maybe as, as the, the people you're talking to, although I understand their their uh, uh, situation. But again, I, I don't view uh, 
bond buyers is particularly sentimental or, or optimistic. And, right. and they're you know, putting money online for 10, 20, 30 years at very, very low interest rates. So if that's true, then uh, and, and inflation's lurking out there, they're, they're making a big mistake. But typically, uh, I don't say markets are always right, but there's typically not. Uh, they, they incorporate the incorporate the current information. So the expectation is certainly less than the kind of thing they're fearing. Yeah, certainly. And that, that's kind of what I always kind of try to bring them back to is I think our minds obviously run to the worst extremes and the worst, darkest corners. Yeah. Um, and what one person might call extreme or hyperinflation yeah. is completely different to what the next person or maybe an economist would call it. And I think it's almost surprising to hear you say 10 to 15 percent is not out of the picture. Well, no, I think I think it is. I don't. I think that six or seven is a possibility. But mm-hmm. I, I think we we have the will to do something at that point, not sure. to get out of control. Another example of uh, where, where there's a, a one perception which is really uh, very well justified, but yet the markets don't necessarily confirm it is the state of Illinois. Now everyone knows that the state of Illinois is in a very difficult financial situation and they have all kinds of uh, problems both in terms of uh, you know spending and and uh, issues about uh, uh, regulation and taxation and so on but yet the state of Illinois is selling bonds for three uh, percent or so right. now mm-hmm. and uh, so if you expected uh, the uh, the uh, state to uh, become insolvent you're not going to be lending money at right. uh, at three percent yeah for sure uh, and, and that's kind of that's kind of my sense of it Fred is uh, you know, we probably get you know, look. Young folks haven't really seen inflation; they've they've lived through disinflation. Mm-hmm. It's I think the reason we hear it so much is our clients are six, typically sixty or older, and they still have an adult memory where they can remember thirteen and a half percent inflation in nineteen eighty, yeah. uh, and and then what what the Fed and the policymakers had to do to tame that once and for all, and really go into a thirty year plus period now. Yeah. of disinflation we had to, we threw in a pretty bad recession didn't we right but also the uh the rules changed the measurements changed you don't hear much about the misery index right. anymore the misery index was developed back in the uh, 70s and 80s it wasn't it was a pretty simple thing you just add together the unemployment rate plus the uh interest rate inflation rate and in the uh in the uh late 70s you had uh, a misery index in the in the 20s uh 10% uh, inflation, ten percent, uh, eight, eight, nine, ten percent employment sometimes. So, uh, what, where is that now? Well, the interest, the misery rate is very close to to zero. Um, mm-hmm. Inflation rate of one or two percent prior to the uh, the COVID thing. The unemployment rate was uh, three or four percent. So we had a, uh, but no one was particularly happy about that. So again, the uh, you, you sort of worry about what's happening at the time, not what has happened twenty years ago. No, but I, I think some people that, you know, in their lifetime, that's kind of one of the most damaging periods. Uh-huh. You know, that you go back to the 80, early 80s, late 70s, that's where the communities like the Danvilles and Decaturs of the world really, you know, mm. got decimated for the most yeah. part. It was also a period when it was uh, very incur- uh, very discouraging to be an investor because you were, you could get your 10% interest rate uh, returns, but you're... Uh, having 10% inflation plus uh, a tax rate of 30 40%. So you actually had uh, negative real returns in this situation. So it was very discouraging for a person trying to invest to build a, a, a future when you're getting basically negative returns. That, that all changed in the, in the 80s. And yet people are buying a 10-year treasury at 1.75, and the, and the Fed has already said, look, we're ramping up inflation, and we think it's going to be 2.4%. It'll probably be any number but yeah. that, but they're fairly given indications that our policy is going to drive inflation higher than we've been used to, even though it may not be right. know, problematically high. Uh, and yet people are willing to buy those 10-year treasuries and get a, and signing up for 10 years of negative real return. Yeah, and the treasuries, I, mean, I don't know what the treasury is talking about, but people are are asking the treasury to think about even longer-term kind of uh, bonds that go, go out maybe even 100 years, and, and the expectation is people would buy those 100-year bonds at relatively uh, low interest rates. It, well, wouldn't that make – why isn't that done, in your uh, opinion? I guess, first of all uh, – the opportunity hasn't presented itself in most cases. Now you have this window where it looks like a almost like an arbitrage play on the part of the of the government to to sell the bonds at a really low interest rate, and then uh, at that point uh, the investor has to worry about the situation. 
Well, it certainly shifts the risk, doesn't it? Yeah. A lot of risk. Uh, it's and again, the, the one thing that, uh, in, in response to uh, Ryan's question, uh, the, the one hope is that the economy will start growing. So mm-hmm. probably the uh, the debt won't go down a whole lot, but if the economy grows faster than the, the debt grows, it will reduce the burden in terms of uh, percentages. And with technology and a lot of the forces in the big picture – are quite disinflationary at the same time. So right. I think that's why it probably doesn't get out of hand. But like you said, that's probably the number one question we're getting right now is, oh, what are we going to do about this? And, of course, that's uh, always circles back to a market timing question. Yeah. You know, should we do something about well, it? Well, or can, or can you do something about it? Can I mean, you? I, yeah. I mean, you could uh, buy uh, inflation-adjusted bonds and, and get basically zero return. Right. But... Again, if you want to do more than that, but you get an inflation inflation adjusted zero. Yeah. So anyway, so anyway, you you get a real return of zero, uh, but uh, beyond that, uh, everything involves uh, risk, and that's that's the uh, issue that every investor faces. And I think in in that word risk, I mean the risk of answering that question with, uh, well, we're going to do this because of those fears. I think that's where most investors take that off ramp to subpar returns uh you know you might be even like a year ago we've talked about this a number of times uh if someone told you that you were going to have a pandemic and a horrible recession and tens of millions of people out you know would you buy the stock market or put your money in cash and so you could have been absolutely right about your forecast for the economy but dead wrong about the investments it's just too difficult and so that always circles back to look we can't well, I'm comforted that nobody can really predict the economy in the near term all yeah. that well, let alone what investments are going to do, in particular investments. So all we can really learn from history is constant commitment to these asset classes and a strategy. See, we only control our returns in a sense, to the, in a sense that we control our asset allocation between the big picture, between stocks and bonds and cash. Beyond that, the returns are going to be what they're going to be. What what retirees in particular, but even all investors, but particularly retirees, because they're not really in the accumulation mode and they don't have a paycheck anymore, you need to have guardrails that say, okay, if what we fear happens, what are we going to do then? And there's different choices. You can choose to increase your appetite for uncertainty by increasing your stock market positions. Uh, most people don't want to do that. Well, one other option is if returns are not as favorable as one hoped, or or disappointing is probably a better way to say that, uh, or well below average, you might have to make some spending cuts. Um, they're probably going to be modest in all likelihood from all the research I've done, but there's no guarantees, yeah. are there? For and, and the problem is, uh, if you really want to deal with inflation, uh, you have to take some pretty dramatic steps. For example, um, in some uh, portfolios, they'll say, well, we have to worry about inflation. We'll buy, uh, we'll allocate 5% of our our assets to inflation-adjusted right. bonds. Well, that's fine, but that's not going to do very much if you really have the right. kind of problems you're talking about. Yeah, if you want, really want to do it, you have to take some really uh, dramatic and probably painful steps, and most people probably don't want to do that. And you mean that, is that, is that buying gold and commodities? Well, or? I'm not sure about, I would I mean, not not five percent, maybe fifty percent. Oh yes, yeah. because a five percent is not going to buy you much protection. Right, but uh, most people don't want to do that. <laughs> no, in fact, when you look at most portfolios from financial advisors, most yeah. of the time it's just lip service. It's just trying to pander to yeah. those emotions of their clients, and so they'll put in three percent of this and two percent of that, and you know, in the name of inflation protection. But I've always thought oh, it's a weird. I mean, most people are not that don't wake up and say, "I really want to take a lot, have a lot more unpredictability in my portfolio yeah. today." When you look at inflation, it's long-term history. You get average annual inflation of about three percent, and it probably a plus or minus one uh, percent from a from a variance. And what I never understood is, you know, you take something like gold that has a high amount of volatility and fluctuation, you know, maybe 30% a year. It's, you know, some of these inflation type items are very volatile and it doesn't make sense to put something that's incredibly volatile in the portfolio to hedge against something that is really not volatile. Right. Well, probably, probably nobody understood that. <laughs> not because they're not smart, just because <laughs> I'm not sure I understood it. No, actually I do. 
You, know, you, you don't want to magnify the risk of your portfolio in order to protect something that, A, may yeah. not happen, and B, if it does, it, it, you know, it, it's not 3% one day and 12% next month. Yeah. And there's no, again, we, we can say this again and again. I, I use the term risk, you use it as <laughs> other terms, but there's no way to avoid risk. I mean, you buy all, all inflation-adjusted uh, uh, bonds, but you still have a risk of losing your principal. You noticed I don't use the word risk. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny, and, and, and I think you're the first person to pick up on it. Risk just means so many different things to people, yeah. right? It's like risk, oh, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to be broke. Well, I guess that's a form of risk. In the investment world, to me, I always look at it as, well, in the near term, these things are unpredictable and some are more predict- yeah. unpredictable than others. And so we have to live with that unpredictability or fluctuation. Well, risk is two-sided, too. People, uh, if you buy a risky investment, you could just as well do great as uh, going broke. So risk is not all downside. It's upside as well as downside right someone once asked me you know what's the greatest risk for stock investors and i in my younger days said not owning enough of them yeah uh i've matured a bit and i'm not you know that but in some that addresses what you're saying you know Mm -hmm. there's risks i suppose to being having some of your money invested in the unpredictable natured uh great companies of america and the world but there's also a risk. It, it, it kind of also trade-offs, aren't they, Fred? We, we, right. we don't really eliminate risk. We're just trading one risk against another at all times, aren't we? Or, uh, again, the, 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 all of it is trading risk gets return. And, again, lower risk usually, not always, but usually means lower return. And I think those are connected at the hip. Yeah. And that's why I don't understand ten-year treasuries. You know, it looks like you're getting all the risk and no return. Yeah. <laughs> I just – I, I – it doesn't mean people shouldn't own any of them because you, most people aren't going to have an appetite for a hundred percent stock portfolio. For, it'd probably be inappropriate for the majority of people, uh, and so you have to put that into another asset class, and that's when we typically think of bonds or cash. And of course, it's not limited to treasuries. You can buy corporate bonds, and you can buy junk corporate bonds, and all kinds of things. Um, switching gears a little bit, I've been uh, running my last two columns in the News Gazette have been kind of centered around retirement. And I kind of want Ryan to go over some of the things that we talked about in that article, but, you know, just kind of bring that, you know, what it's really like to be a retirement planner and deal with these questions and, how, you know, how we treat them and why they're important. Um, why don't you go over, like, some of the big ones? Oh, I think maybe one of the biggest is, you know, you've just hung up your hat, you're you're retired, and now you have to decide, well, how much can I afford to live on year to year, month to month? Um, and that's a big question because on the very front end of retirement, let's say you have 20, 30, or maybe someone who's really young, 40 years in retirement, it's an important question to get right on the front end so you don't, one, overspend too much and then have to find ways to pull back your spending or to the, you know, we talk about the flip side of things. The flip side is maybe you were so cautious on the front end, you sacrificed your maybe your your fun, very maybe healthy years on the front end for maybe having a larger cash balance on the back end, and you might not even be able to to take advantage of it. So you end up the richest person in the cemetery. Yeah, or or and in which the is not long-term care goals. facility. Yeah, before you even go out, and you don't, you know. But, but what when when a new client walks in, a prospective client walks in the door, what, what are the odds that they're they can tell you within uh, five hundred dollars a month <laughs> how much it takes to live the way they live? Uh, real low. Most, real low. Yeah. I think most folks say, you know, I I think I know how much I spend, but it's always just kind of the thought, like, well, of course I know, but. When you, when you actually talk about it and say, well, tell me about that, you start to realize that most people have a very squishy or loose number about how much they spend. And uh, retirement planning is really about trying to be as, as close in an approximation as you can and not trying to be squishy. So, so how, do you, how do you deal with that on the front end you, to at least start fencing it in, as I call it? Yeah. So I think we, we start talking about what, is it, what does it actually take to be retired? And for some people, they think they need to replace their full gross income. So if you made $50,000 a year, you need $50,000 in retirement. Uh, some benchmarks say just for real sip, simple, quick numbers, take 80% of that, and that's what you need. And the reason they say take 80% of your 50, maybe it's around 40000 is because you're no longer uh, paying in uh, taxes for, medic, uh, for the Medicare tax, the payroll tax, 7.65% diverted every single paycheck uh, to fund those taxes. 
And then two, you know, now that you're actually retired, you're no longer uh, saving for retirement. And so and taxes tend overall for most people tend to be a little lower uh, in, retirement. in retirement than yeah. it is while they're working. Certainly. So that that's where that, you know, rule of thumb, you know, pops up. We we don't really go by rules of thumb like that, but it's good for folks just kind of in the back of their mind to keep. Does it help if you because I've heard you do this. Does it help when you say, OK, well, what is your typical take home paycheck when it hits your checking or savings account? Is, okay. that, is that kind of a mental shortcut to start fencing it in exactly so it's like if you know after you saved money for your your savings and after you've paid the taxes the money that comes to you in your bank account maybe through direct deposit uh if it's two thousand dollars a month how much of that two thousand dollars a month do you think you spend or another way to ask it how much is left over after you've paid all the bills and you know maybe had a little bit of fun that month and went out to dinner um, you know, and if you say, well, maybe I spend all of that. Well, then there you go. You know that $2,000 a month is essentially your replacement amount. Or if there's a little left over each month and the, that savings amount is growing in your bank account, you know that maybe you don't need that full 2000 You can kind of back it down a little bit. So those are, you know, relatively easy ways to kind of get to that number. Um, you know, so you have some shortcuts to at least you know, say it's not 10000 a month and it's not 1000 a month. It's probably between 4000 and 5,000, and at least now we can get, a, then you could almost eyeball, uh, and you figure out by the time you add in their social security or any pensions, and then you kind of look at their assets, and if you used a 4% or mm-hmm. whatever you want to use, uh, you can probably, in that first meeting, give a person a concept of whether it's practical or not, uh, thinking about retiring now. Exactly. And I think for most people that come through our door, which is, of course, like a a, a skewed potentially subset folks that are searching out potentially an advisor looking for someone in their life they may have some more assets uh, than maybe the average person uh, but they can they can start seeing very quickly if they have the financial means to retire now or or in the near term um, and for us it's just a matter of trying to make sure we connect those dots so they can make those decisions and it's best to make these kinds of initial meetings and reviews few years out upwards of five years out from retirement so you have the ability, if you need to, to maybe ramp up savings, for example, if you need a little extra, then maybe your your assets and income streams will produce. So it just gives you a little bit of buffer time. And then one of the questions is, if I could wave a magic wand, what would my retirement look like? Now, we have lots of ways of asking that, but that's really what we're trying to get in on that first meeting is, where's this person headed? You know, where's this money pointed to? What, you know, what's it pointed towards? Yep. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? How do you how do you deal? How do you start that discussion? Uh, I just you know you know you can bring it up a couple ways, like you asked it, or what is what is valuable to you in life? Is it travel? Is it family? Is it gifting? You know, there's any number of answers that anyone could give. But, Four you know, or five big ones, yeah. Probably. And and so like one question might be you know, given you have let's just assume for now in, in this conversation you have enough assets. What would bring you the most joy or most value in your retirement to be able to put those assets towards? How could you see yourself most fulfilled? And depending on the nature of the person, they'll give you different responses. And what it flushes out is the things that maybe matter most. It brings those to surface. And I think as an advisor and and specifically us as planners um, who are looking to potentially plan out various goals and hopes and wishes, we're really trying to show uh, a lot of our clients Maybe a world that they only dream they could live. You know, right. that's the. I think that's the excitement, the area that gets us most uh, joy as an advisor. Is we're not just trying to say yes, you can sustain your lifestyle. Do you, fi- do you but, find that it's common for people to kind of sandbag their own deal? They just can't really even envision. Yeah. Uh, for instance, it's really you. It's pretty usual. It's pretty, pretty often when I'm really having trouble with words today. COVID, I tell you, it's COVID. Um, frequently, you know, just dis, you know, discount the fact that they might actually have a retirement with a higher standard of living than mm-hmm. when they were working. Yep. Yet, it frequently happens. Yeah, I think most people just say, "Well, there's there's no way I could afford to do that, or I can't take that trip every single year, or, or take that big lifetime goal trip that maybe is you know some people think about." And and sometimes it's one spouse will say something, and the other spouse will say or partner will say, "Oh, we can't do that." Right. You it, know, it immediately will their left side of their brain doesn't allow them to go there. Yeah, I think that that can come from the person who's been the real diligent 
frugal saver, and their DNA, their financial DNA, regardless of what their assets and their bank account number says, will always say, oh, no, protect, save, be, be weary of the, the dark days to come, be careful. And I think that's what you know, a, a real valuable financial advisor can do is say, let's, let's assume kind of those worst case scenarios do exist. They're out there in the bushes and they do show up. In those bad days, those bad events, could you still fulfill your goals plus maybe some of these dream wish items as well? And we flush that out in our planning meetings. On know. the front end, you say, look, yeah. okay, if this is what you're afraid of, okay, here's what your adjustments would be, positive or negative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's kind of good to know on the front end. It strikes me after 38 years that most retirees, Fred, I know I'm not looking at you like you're a retiree because <laughs> you're, you're, you're the busiest sort of retired guy I know. Um, it's the free time issue. What are we going to do with all this free time? We're used to all spending forced to you know, go to a certain place in some cases and, and for 40 hours a week <laughs> typically. But it doesn't seem to be a big issue with our clients, so I think ours probably are similar to most, where they seem to fill that vacuum real fast. Yeah, and also it's very difficult to uh, say what it would be like to do something completely different. You don't really know. Right. Uh, and again, uh, 10 or 15 years ago, if, if I were planning my retirement, I said I'd like to have a situation where I have uh, access to play tennis all the time, and now I don't really care very much about tennis. I care a little bit, but not right. not enough to change my life. I don't. I used to play golf quite a bit. Uh, I've never uh, want to be uh, on a golf course and pay a lot of extra because I don't, don't care about it anymore. So you don't really know. You you can't judge or predict what your your own. Uh, a 60-year-old doesn't know what their 70-year-old self is And also, be. like, if someone said, uh, how about moving to Costa Rica for retirement? Uh, that might be the world's greatest thing. It might be the world's worst thing, but <laughs> I just, who knows? <laughs> we just uh, have a new family down in Texas in the Houston area uh, that sold their company. And the first thing he said he's really seriously considering is moving the family down to Costa Rica. And I, I don't know why. I guess it's paradise, but... I guess I have. I guess I'm such a chicken. I think wherever I go, it's going to become a banana republic overnight, right. and I'll end up in prison. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, better to stay up here, Paul. <laughs> I think so, uh, Dr. Gertz. I th- I think a lot about uh, folks who are just retired. They don't know what they're going to do with their time yet. So I yeah. think of it almost like they're taking a sabbatical, right. and in this like maybe a period of six months, year, two years, they kind of just have that unwind time. Where right. they're doing like the golf and the tennis, like you bring up deferred stuff. Yeah, yeah. The, you know the things that you know they control their fun and time and joy, and then after that, that kind of like on a rosy time of retirement, kind of starts turning into now what? Yeah, and I think that's kind of like what you were bringing up. And right, you start filling it with other things that you didn't think about. Before. Well, the thing is, you probably don't want to make really elaborate plans to do something you're not sure about in the in the future. That, yeah. that like you're saying, give yourself some flexibility to, to find out or maybe do it before you retire. If you're going to go to Costa Rica, maybe you want to spend uh, a few months a year uh, before you retire in Costa Rica to see if you really like it. Yeah, it's kind of the retirement fitting room concept I have. Yeah. We'll talk about that someday. Um, we have a caller. We have Frank on line one if I hit the right button. Frank, are you there? Yes, yes. Thank you. Yes, sir. I'm call. Happy. Yeah, i got a question on the American Rescue Act. The uh, stimulus checks that we've been receiving yes sir uh the first two checks that i got i uh, uh the wife and i file a uh, uh couple uh joint return joint return and i understood that that was a cut off at 150,000 that's uh, where it begins to phase in and it cuts out completely at 160,000 for a married couple or a filing joint. Okay. okay. Um, when I filed my taxes, I could figure out exactly what they deducted for uh, uh, 20, uh, 2019. Mm-hmm. Yep. But uh, the stimulus check I just got now, uh, they've deducted almost $900. Uh, and I can't figure out. So you didn't why, get the you didn't get the full amount by nine hundred dollars. You know from the full amount, right? Should have gotten twenty eight hundred, and you got something like nineteen hundred. I got eight. Oh, I mean times, yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, I was wondering if uh, well, n- yeah. not all is lost. Uh, if you filed your 
2020 tax return yet? Yeah, just now. Yeah. And, and how now. did your adjusted gross income look for that? It it was under 150,000 for okay. a So you can there's a there's a way to go and get that recovery rebate. Uh, I think it's it's a case where uh, it's super complex. I don't think we really know. F- One thing is the IRS has, has claimed that they're going to go back and be able to uh, patch in the changes yes. a, a, without having to refile your return, but that, that's no no guarantee it's going to happen. There's also, like Paul was suggesting, it's not just based on one year. It's based upon two or th- uh, Yeah, you can even go years. forward to 2021 from yeah. what I understand. So right now it's, that's going to be lower. It's a huge – not a mess, but a huge uh, uh, uncertainty associated with that. So I'm not sure whether just waiting might be the best. It uh, could be. I guess my my message would be if if you qualified for it, that doesn't mean you always got the right amount up front that you may have to wait before you get the other, and you may actually have to do something, uh, submit something. Uh, if you call our office at 356-1400, don't forget the 217 now. You have to do that. It drives me nuts. That's right. Uh, right. Then we have a calculator uh, that we can at least run it through just kind of for what ifs and see if 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 what you're saying, uh, yeah. it will tell us whether you should have gotten it or not. Uh, yeah. If you want to do that, we'd be happy to do that for you. Because uh, when I filed my 2020 return just now, I did uh, fill out the worksheet for the rebate uh, okay. for the first first two stimulus because I did have uh, something coming back from uh, those two stimulus checks because of my uh, 2020 uh, adjusted gross income was uh, under 150000 so yeah. I had some coming back. But I was just wondering about this 2021, why it was uh, so much deducted from, uh, from it. Well, they may catch up to your 2020 tax return, like Dr. Fred said, is what I suspect. Yeah. I, I guess there's a light at the end of the tunnel. If you qualified, I believe you will get it. You just might have to take one additional step. Right. And this is really yeah. a, a nightmare for the IRS. Usually uh, they get hit with a bunch of tax well, changes in uh, November or December, and then they have to get it ready for the next year. This time they got hit with something in the midst of the tax season. Oh, and that, hence they, uh, they've changed yeah. the filing date now to May 17th. But I tell you, it gets pretty tricky. You take a, a single pops in my brain at the limit 75000 but you go $1,000 over that and you lose $840 of the credit. And it's like, wow, that's an 84% marginal yeah. tax rate. So people really <laughs> are going to need to be careful and really pay a lot of their ta- It might pay a number of people to, to really massage those numbers before before yeah. they sign that return. Yeah, I understand the IRS is still uh, working on 2019 returns. I, I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised, Frank. <laughs> I think you're going to get it uh, if you qualified. In fact, I'm certain you'll get it if you qualified. Uh, just, and, and feel free to call back in sometime when you tell me that I was right. <laughs> okay. Thank All you right. very much. All I right. enjoy, enjoy your program right. very thank, much. Thank, thank you, you, sir. Yeah, that's the way they changed this last one, you know, with that phase out and yeah. so abruptly. The the mark, the it's really pretty, yeah, <laughs> pretty cruel, I guess. I didn't get it anyway, but if I if I just happened to make that extra thousand and I didn't, oh, maybe I could have put another thousand in an yeah. IRA or four hundred one k account, and then I get the whole thing versus yeah, tax tax people call that a notch where you move up a couple dollars, your taxes go up by. Uh, hundred times and, and that happens with social security with the tax torpedo you know you yeah. can just you just barely trip over and now you get I mean, it's called the tax to- torpedo for a yeah. reason but well, the uh the uh uh long gone uh, fair tax in illinois was the same kind of thing where if you went above a certain level uh not just your extra income was taxed at the high rate all of your uh, yeah a lot of swept it all in yeah oh that's pretty nice <laughs> it doesn't I'm, seem I'm very fair yeah um, what else do you tend to discuss and, and find people asking you? Um, you know, just talking about like, well, what if, for example, I worked a little longer? Or what if I saved a little more? I think people might have those questions in their head. And, you know, for most people, you don't probably know the impact of working an extra year or two or three years and maybe foregoing uh, a few years of distributions from your portfolio, possibly having to self-fund health care prior to age 65, Medicare. For a lot of people, 
um, the option to retire early uh, before 65 and receiving Medicare isn't often an option because the cost in the past has been so high to qualify for Medicare. Now, more recently, we have the ACA and the healthcare marketplace that allows us um, to potentially keep uh, close tabs on people's income to qualify for that healthcare subsidy. So you can get far more uh, low-cost healthcare, not not lower uh, value or provider healthcare, just lower cost. But and that you know, what's interesting about that, Fred, is you know you could have a million and a half dollars, two million dollars in assets, but because you can control your income in retirement to a large extent, or for right. at least some people can, right, that they can get seventy, eighty, ninety percent of their your healthcare picked up if you're yeah. prior to Medicare age, if yeah. you want to retire early. Yeah, it's really. Uh, <laughs> A difficult planning question, though, because you have so di- many different margins. For example, if you go beyond a certain level, you lose your uh, your uh, uh, property tax credit in the state of Illinois. Right. If you have children, you, you something happens and you you lose the potential for uh, scholarship aid. So, so you're talking about you know four, five, six different margins where you have to watch all these things, and it's a very difficult kind of yeah, challenge. Yeah, you, you, you trip over just to buy a dollar and a Medicare, you know, uh, notch. And all of a sudden, you're you're paying a very high Medicare cost in retirement as opposed to the other. So all these things really need to be. It's 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 a lot to handle at once. And and again, know, it, like I, I was going to comment, uh, Ryan sort of answered the question later on. But I suspect most people don't even not only do not not, not know how much they're spending, they don't know what their income is. Oh, uh, 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 that's that's more frequent. You know, more often than not, that's the case. There's a famous story of. Uh, uh, President Eikenberry was in Springfield and uh, testifying before a hearing, and they said, uh, what's your salary? And he said, I don't know. <laughs> and he had to call back and <laughs> find out what it was. So, again, most people – he was in a situation where he probably didn't have to worry about the last dollar, but uh, most people probably don't know exactly all their sources of income, how they uh, how they come together and what the, the, the overall package is. And yeah, that just made me think of another thing that – uh, perspective people heading into retirement, one of the questions we always need to know, or one of them is, are there any financial boulders running down the hill at you? And if the answer is no, great. And if so, we have to plan for them. But what about the other side of that? Is there going to be an inheritance of that's that's somewhat meaningful? Mm-hmm. And they instantly flinch. And <laughs> they're like, that's such a creepy thing to talk about because you have to yeah. think about somebody dying or waking up on a cloud, as I call it. Uh, and that's a that's a little bit difficult to dance around, but sometimes I just have to be blunt and say, look, let's put it this way. Is it, uh, would it be more than a $2 million? Oh, no, 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 no. Is it more than 10000 Yes, or 100000 Yes. Okay, it's probably something that needs to be brought into the plan, and there's ways to deal with that by just saying, let's push it way out further than actuarial tables say, and let's assume it's going to be, you know, it's a conservative number compared to what the value is today, and that we can usually work around that because suppose you're going to inherit uh three hundred thousand dollars in the next five to ten years. Well, you know that might be another thousand to twelve hundred dollars a month yeah. uh, of retirement spending that if you know it's almost inevitable if it's inevitable and you and you're being careful with your assumptions of how much is going to roll down at you. Uh, I think, you know, that's kind of one way to deal with it, but it definitely is a planning issue. Yeah. There's a term, uh, someone, a financial advisor was talking to someone, and the person was living a, a lifestyle that was far beyond what their income would justify. And, and the person said, what do you do for a living? And he said, I'm a waiter. And he said, I'm waiting for my p- <laughs> <laughs> That's fun. I'll yeah. steal that one, Dr. Fred. Yeah, I think most people, when we bring that topic up, are so cautious, like, oh, no, 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 I don't, I don't even want to think about right. that. You know, and it's like, well, as planners, we say, you know, let's, we don't, don't have to you incorporate know, it the yet. The in-law side never seems to have trouble with it. That's right. <laughs> you know, I've they got can a, always think about their in-laws. And yeah. Like, oh, yeah, we, yeah, we got to definitely think about that one, but not my folks. I've got a big line item in my financial plan coming down from you, Paul, so thank you. <laughs> well, life can be very disappointing, right? <laughs> That's all I can say. I was kind of hoping money would go the other way. What about the trade-offs should people think about? Yeah, so I think... There's different things like like I was alluding to earlier, retiring earlier, later, especially with healthcare being a potential big ticket item. What are the big levers though? Is that one of them? Um, really, mostly probably just like your allocation, how much that's you have in one. stocks versus bonds is going to be a big decision factor. And that's more from a potential spend, not an upfront spend, or and or room for error slash legacy that I'm going to leave somebody or some institution I dearly love. 
Exactly. That's that, where allocation really drives a lot. It's that maybe if you're looking at a three-decade retirement, that you know three decades of compounding and maybe a 60 or 70% stock portfolio rather than a 40 or a 50 has big magnitude differences. And, you know, in the context of everyone's assets and income streams, you make those choices, not just blindly. Okay. Uh, what about social security claiming? Uh, is that a sticky one typically? Or what would you say if it's a, uh, a joint couple uh, with survivor benefits mm-hmm. uh, down the road? Do you, is there a standard advice on that, would you say? Generally or do the, you just look at all of them? Well, you, you, you look at them all. I think for most people it's an emotional decision, so, Social Security claiming. But we try to bring a non-emotional side. Um, so we'll look and say maybe the larger earner defers uh, as long as possible, ideally maybe to 70 if their assets allow them to live prior to having to claim it. And that, that's a longevity hedge for them, also for their surviving spouse because it will bump up and give that surviving spouse – uh, larger payment as well. And so that's this, a form of really longevity insurance by waiting certainly. as much as long as you can uh, financially and mentally hang in there. Uh, so that's typically, but you, you're you going to run four, five, six scenarios and basically you pick the one you like that you know fits in your life the best. And I think that's probably the best way for people to make decisions is put them side by side and which one appeals more to you in the way you want to approach retirement. Yeah, and I mean, if you you have those six scenarios and you plan on scenario B, but five weeks from now you change your mind, that's it's doable as long as you haven't claimed Social Security. So you can always push it out later and claim sooner than you originally intended. But once you claim it, you can't make a change going back. Right. If we went into a very nasty market decline and your portfolio is fifty or sixty percent stocks going into that, you know, that could be for some people the only way they're going to make it out is to speed up when they take Social Security so they're taking less out of their portfolio than they were last mm-hmm. month. And that's always an option, too. Well, time went by fast. Thanks, Dr. Fred Gertz. Thanks. Thanks, Ryan Repko, who works with me at Rudy Wealth Management. We'll be back in two weeks, and we'll be back for more Paul Rudy's On the Money. Thanks for listening. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.